For the last several weeks and for the next few weeks to come, we've been going through a series, the title of which is on the screen, Mind Games, How to Think For and About Yourself. And in the time that we have remaining for this hour, and I do apologize for the for the shortened time frame, I'm in large part responsible for that, so the apology is sincere. But uh, we will try to use it as profitably as we can. But for those of you who have not been here for the prior weeks, let me tell you what this uh, series is about. Uh, we have been looking at the fact that our words and our actions flow from our thoughts. So mind games is an extremely important uh, element for us to consider in the sanctification process. That is the process by which we are gradually set apart from the world and to God, becoming more and more like Christ on a regular basis. If that's going to happen, I've emphasized that it's not a matter of starting with the behavior, but rather we really need to start at the root of our behavior. And the root of our behavior goes ultimately to our desires, but it issues forth in the way we think, and that then comes out in the way we talk and in the way we act. Too often, we look at the fruit before we look at the root of the problem. And the root of our issues is our desires and our thoughts. And over these last few weeks, I've been trying to point out that our thoughts uh, are about ourselves, what we think about ourselves. Sometimes we brood about ourselves and uh, all of our inadequacies. We brood about our circumstances and how they're not what we would desire. And then that, in turn, always brings us to thoughts about God, whether overtly or uh, covertly, as we just uh, as we ruminate about ourselves and our situation, it's impossible for us to not then think about God and think about why God has not made the situation different or why God has not gifted me in other ways and in better in better ways. So these thoughts go on in our minds all of the time about ourselves, about God, and then they affect our demeanor. They affect our joy or lack of our joy. They affect the way we talk and they affect our, our actions. These are the roots that give rise to then the fruit of our actions in words and in deeds. So that being the case, mind games is extremely important. And I've tried to encourage you to think about thinking. We normally don't think about the way we think. We think about the way we talk and we think about the way we act, but we don't think about the way we think. And part of the reason we think about the way we talk and act is because those things are obvious Whereas the thinking behind it is not always obvious. The words I speak to others in in the presence of others, the actions that I perform in the presence of others, those are obvious to others. And so I therefore care about those and I want to be guarded about those. I want to make sure that people don't think ill of me. So I want to make sure that my behavior uh, is acceptable and my words are acceptable as best I can. Now that's because I care about what people think of me. But here's the thing. If we cared enough about what God thinks of us, then we would think about our thoughts. Because even though our thoughts are not known to our friends, unless we choose to divulge them, even though our thoughts are not known to our friends, they are always known to God. So the very first thing we need to do as we engage in the mind games is understand that the field in which that game is played is always in the presence of God, quorum Deo, before the face of God. That we are always transacting with God every moment 
of every day. That every thought you have, everything you ruminate about, you are doing in the presence of God. And you are either obeying God and pleasing God and emulating the character of God, or you are not. Now, if you'll think of it that way, then, if you'll then value the fact that God understands, God knows what it is I'm thinking, then you won't only be concerned about what other people know about me, but rather I'll be concerned about what do I really think in the in my heart of hearts, in the recesses of my own minds when I interact with people, whether family or coworkers, friends, church folk, what do I really think about people? And I suggested a couple of weeks ago it would be a very scary thing <laughs> if we were able to, you know, map. I mean, you know, we got all these advances. You know, we're going to be able to map what you're thinking. That now that will be cool. We'll have a service where we'll just put a thing on your head, and up on the screen goes all the thoughts that have been going through. It's been monitored for the last week, and you're all moaning. Now here's the thing. God knows every piece of that. You think about how embarrassed we would be if people knew what I think. And one of the best ways for us to get to a cure to the way we think, to get to victory in the mind games, is for us to begin to value as most important what God sees about what we think. And the moment you begin to do that now, it will not be just, I'll be guarded in what I say and in what I do depending on who I'm with. But rather, I will begin to think God's thoughts after him. I will begin to think in ways that pattern what the Bible says about a Christian who is becoming like Jesus in the way he or she thinks and talks and acts. Now, if if that's the case for us, if sanctification, if becoming like Jesus involves thinking like him and then in turn talking and acting like him, if it involves thinking like Jesus, then we all still have a long way to go, don't we? And we are none of us as far along as we thought we were after all. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we are given instructions on how we ought to think about each other. And we'll get to the text of 1 Corinthians 13 in a moment. But let me remind you as to why there is a 1 Corinthians 13. Why there is a chapter 13 that we have dubbed rightly the love chapter because it's about... Christian love for one another. But why is there a a chapter 13 in Corinthians? Well, bear with me. Here's why. It's because the first letter written to the church at Corinth, thus the name 1 Corinthians, which implies there's at least a second. And sure enough, in your Bible, there's a second Corinthians. But this first letter written by Paul to the Christians in the city of Corinth, is about their behavior, primarily about their behavior with one another and how they think about one another. Now, how do I know this? Because in in chapter 1 and verse 10, in chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says there that some from the household of Chloe 
have told us that there are divisions among you, that there are divisions among the Christians in the church at Corinth. Now, we don't know who Chloe is. And I I trust that in Corinth at the time, Chloe was in the witness protection program against the people in Corinth because apparently Chloe snitched (laughs) on the folks in, in Corinth. And we have learned from some in the household of Chloe that there are these divisions among you. And if you remember reading through these opening chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, you find when you get to chapter 3, Paul talking about the fact that people are divided because they they have particular personalities that they they follow. And so some say, I'm of Peter or Cephas. Some say, I'm of Paul. Some say, I'm, I'm of Apollos. Some say, I am of Christ. And Paul endeavors to instruct them in those chapters to be united in their thinking because we are simply servants of of Christ and all of us ought to be focused on him and the fact that we each have a role to play in the work that he has assigned to us. That's what 1 Corinthians 3 is about. I was a wise master builder. I laid a foundation, but someone else is building upon that. And each man will be judged and held accountable before the Lord for his work. So don't think about yourselves in terms of whose team you're on other than I'm on Jesus' team. That's what he's saying. Then when you get to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has to deal with sin in their midst. It's there that he says, you're going to have to remove the leaven from among you because a little leaven leavens the entire lump. And there in chapter 5, there's a, a gross and public sin that someone has been engaged in and they have refused to refused to deal with that. Now, why they've refused to deal with that, we're not told. Was there some favoritism because uh, of who this person was? But Paul insists that they deal with this sin. You come to chapter 6, and chapter 6 is in large part about the fact that they're taking one another to court. Do you all remember that? That you're going to court because you have these disputes with each other. And instead of settling those as Christian brothers and sisters, you're going to unbelievers and having them settled in unbelieving uh, secular courts. Then when you come to chapter 7, chapter 7, it starts out this way. The very first verse says this, now about the matters you wrote about. Now about the matters you wrote about. So it appears that the first six chapters are all stuff that the snitches in Chloe's house told them. But then you come to now another section where Paul has another source of information. And that source of information is now about the matters you wrote about. And then if you were to look at 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, you would see that. And then it would be followed by a colon because now he's going to address the matters that had been written about. And the first of those matters he takes up is marriage and divorce and remarriage. So again, you have divisions among people in the, in the form of divorce You have some who have become Christians because Paul, in Acts chapter 18, ministered there for a year and a half. People came to Christ. These are the people to whom he is writing. But some of those people have unbelieving spouses. Should I stay married to them? Should I not? Those kinds of things. Then in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 1, it says this, Now about food that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, notice the wording is precisely the same as in chapter 7 and verse 1. Now about the things you wrote about. And then he says, and now about. So here's another of the things you wrote about. 
So now about the things you wrote about, and here's another one on the list. What do we do about food sacrificed to idols? And they are judging each other as to whether or not someone eats or does not eat a particular kind of meat, meat that had been previously sacrificed to, to an idol. And that goes on for three chapters. In uh, three, three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul deals with that issue. And when you come to the end of chapter 10 and verse 31... Chapter 10 and verse 31, famously Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, why does he talk about eating and drinking or whatever you do? Because he's just for three chapters been talking about whether you should eat this meat and principles that would that would apply to that. Now, those of you that have your have your Bible, you have your Bibles open to chapter 13. If you just turn back to chapter 10. And if you look at verse 23, Paul says, everything is permissible. Now, you notice that's in quotation marks. Everything is, everything is lawful or everything is permissible. But it's in, in quotation marks because it's a quote from the Corinthians. The Corinthians are saying... Everything is okay for me to do. But then Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. And then repeats, everything is, everything is lawful or everything is permissible. But not everything is constructive or edifying or builds up others. Do I have the right verse? Okay. Cool. But I, but I point that out to you because... I just want you to notice the mentality of these people. The mentality is, I want to get away with as much as I can. And Paul's saying, no, don't do that. Think about the effect that it would have on other people. Whether or not it's beneficial for you, but also whether or not it's constructive, edifying for others. So in your actions about whether you should eat or drink or whatever you do, do that all to the glory of God, and it brings glory to God. It emulates the character of God when you think about the effect of your actions on other people. So he's having to go through this whole thing with these people because these are selfish, self-centered people. As evidenced by everything that I've gone through here. Then when you, you come to chapter 11, they're engaging in the Lord's table. And in the Lord's table, Paul says, some of you are, are getting drunk at the Lord's table. And that you are so self-centered that as you have your love feast, as you have your meal, you're making sure that you get the lion's share of the food rushing up to the front of the line before someone else. It's another manifestation of the self-centered thinking that these folks had. And then you come to chapter 12. And verse 1, and it starts now about spiritual gifts. So going back to chapter 7, you've got now about the things you wrote about. Chapter 8, now about food sacrifice to idols. Chapter 12, now about spiritual gifts. So again, apparently, that's something that they said, what about? And for three chapters, he deals with spiritual gifts. 12, 13, and 14. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. And... I will distill what he says in chapters 12, 13, and 14 about spiritual gifts. But if you read those chapters, one of the things you will notice is Paul correcting 
the Corinthians' approach to spiritual gifts. Whatever they're doing, they're not doing it right. And part of the reason they're not doing it right is because what they are doing is motivated by a desire to show that I have these gifts. They're motivated by pride. And Paul is telling them, this is not, this is not about pride and this is not about you. This is, these, are, these are gifts given for the benefit of the body, not for you to show off, in effect. And because that's the case, love should dictate everything we do, including the exercise of spiritual gifts. And that's why, then, he includes chapter 13 right in the middle of that. So chapter 13 is in the middle of this discussion about spiritual gifts, but the three-chapter discussion on spiritual gifts is in the midst of this whole letter that is about the self-centered thinking of these people in Corinth. And it's in the midst of that that Paul gives these, these famous words in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. So you all are very gifted and you demonstrate your gifts, Paul says in chapter 12, in the midst of the body. But you need to understand that those gifts are given by God for the benefit of others, not for your self-aggrandizement. And the more excellent way at the end of chapter 12 that he is going to show them is the way of love. And he starts out in these first three verses saying, if you can do all of that stuff, but you have not love, doesn't mean nothing. So you have a lot of people at Corinth, and I would suggest to you, we have a lot of people in our churches today who, if not motivated by love, are doing things that will be the wood, hay, and stubble of chapter 3. So then in chapter 4, what should motivate what we do? It should be this love without which all of these other things are nothing. And what is this love? Love is, verse 4, patience, kind, does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Verse 7 in particular, I want, you to, I want you to see. That love protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. So as we think about our thinking, and we think about how we think about others, how do I view other people? How do I process in my mind my evaluation of other people? Love ought to dictate that processing. How I think about you and how you think about me ought to fit this profile. So that I am always wanting to think the best about you. 
I am always wanting the best for you. You're always thinking the best about me. Let me repeat that. And you're always wanting the best. We are mutually thinking of the best about and wanting the best for one another. Now the antithesis of that, the opposite of that, is when we look at one another and we think about one another in unnecessarily negative ways. We look at one another's actions and rather than thinking the best about those actions and always trusting and always hoping, then rather than love dictating my thoughts, I have sinful thoughts, prideful thoughts about you. Now, why would I do that? Why would you engage, why would I engage in thoughts about one another that are that are not motivated by love. In the remaining moments that we have, I'd like to go through some of the reasons, some of the motivations that we have in why we think about one another. The first one is selfishness. If you somehow stand in the way of me getting what I want, my self-centeredness means I don't think well of you. Another one is pride. We think that we are better than others and we set ourselves up as their judges and begin to catalog their feelings and condemn their actions. So if I'm self-centered, I am going to think in self-centered ways about myself and about, about other people. If I'm a prideful person, then I'm going to think in critical, judgmental, unnecessarily harsh, censorious ways about others. Here's a third motivation for not thinking about one another and thus dealing with one another according to the dictates of love. And that is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. I want to just go through these and then give an antidote, an answer to them, and then we'll have to quit. Another possible motivation for thinking other than unloving thoughts about one another is insecurity. That's a form of what the Bible calls the fear of man. You all remember that? The fear of man, Proverbs 29 and verse 25. Proverbs 29, 25. The book of Proverbs speaks much of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. But then in Proverbs 29 and verse 25, it says, The fear of man will prove to be a snare. The fear, the awe, the reverence that we ought to have for God is the beginning of wisdom. But if we have awe and reverence for other people, then we will care too much about what they think about us and will often be thinking about what they think about us. Too much. We're insecure. Jealous. Lack of forgiveness. All of these are things that will keep us from thinking about one another in loving ways and move us toward thinking about others in destructive ways. Now, as you go down that list, here's your assignment for this week. Let's think about what the answer to each of those things is. What's the answer to being self-centered in my thinking? What's the answer to being prideful in my thinking? What's the answer to being self-righteous in the way that I think about myself and others? What's the answer to insecurity 
the fear of, of man and thinking too highly of what other people think and allowing that to then affect my thoughts and, and actions and demeanor. Or jealousy. It's the answer to being jealous of other people and their gifts and abilities or what they have, what they have uh, or own. And then what motivates a lack of forgiveness? What's the answer to that? Now, I, I want you to think about that this week. I'm tempted to give you the answer, but alas, we're out of time. But I, I want you to think about that because it will bring us to the central message of the Bible. And see how that central message of the Bible then is the hub from which all of these spokes are connected. And that will then begin to help us start replacing this kind of thinking with the right kind of thinking. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 and also in Colossians chapter 3 that there are certain kinds of thoughts and words and behavior that we are to put off. And there are other kinds of thoughts and words of behavior that we are to put on. But in order for that putting off and putting on to happen, we, under, we need to understand what the hub is that causes that transition from the one to the other. So think about that this week. What causes me to be self-centered, prideful, self-righteous, insecure, jealous, unforgiving? And we'll look at that together next week, all right? Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day and the opportunity to have been with your people, to learn of you, to encourage and to be encouraged. We thank you again, Lord, for the light of your word so that we do not grope in darkness in terms of who we are, in terms of why we are here and what your purposes are for us in your world. We thank you, Lord, that you give us instruction on how we can live out the purpose for which you have placed us here and given us the number of years that you have determined for us. And so, Lord, help us to be people who delight that we were able to open the Word of God today and to, and to see your light there and your character brought forth there. And help us, in being so delighted, to this week, then seek to emulate your character in all of our endeavors, in the way we interact with one another, in the way we talk to those that you bring into our circle of influence, But, Lord, especially help us to focus on the root of that speech, the root of that behavior, which is our thoughts, our minds. Help us, Lord, to engage in the mind games in a way that thinks your thoughts after you, in a a way that conforms to the image of Jesus in thinking as Jesus would think about ourselves, about our circumstances, about you and about one another. Go with us this week, we ask. Grant us safety and bring us back next Lord's Day in the name of Jesus. Amen.